Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions. The Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing. Like, why do clothes suck now? And is Paw Patrol copaganda or is it not that deep? And like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Material Girls, a scholarly podcast about popular culture. I'm Marcel Cosman. And I'm Hannah McGregor. And today we are talking about the origin of one of the most well-known and successful movie franchises of all time. (gasps) It's true. We're talking about Star Wars. Coach, a stinger, a stinger. Drop that theme. This script is full of fun facts. Did you know that when the movie was first released in 1977, it was only called Star Wars and that the subtitle Episode 4, A New Hope, wasn't added to the opening screen crawl until four years later in 1981? I did know that it was retconned to be called A New Hope once they decided to call the whole trilogy Star Wars. Yeah. Yeah. So cool. Did you know? (laughs) Hey, listeners, if that was a fun fact that you didn't know, you got to leave us an Apple review now, please. Oh, it has to be five stars. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Just to be clear. (laughs) Four stars. I don't care about Star Wars. How dare you? That's the real Star Wars are the stars we demanded you leave us in our reviews. (laughs) Marcel. Here's a fun fact about Star Wars and me, which is that I didn't watch Star Wars growing up. It was not part of my childhood lexicon. It was not part of my family context. I watched it for the first time, I want to say, seven or eight years ago. So I got to experience it for the first time as an adult, which is actually a pretty fun way to get to experience something this hugely popular because like I had all of this like so much larger contextual information about it totally yeah but had just truly never seen the movies and then I watched them and I was like I I get why people like these so much these are pretty (laughs) good pretty fun huh (laughs) yeah these are pretty fun (laughs) I love them so much they are so that Harrison Ford I think he's going so well Oh, another fun fact. Did you know that he was not originally hired as an actor? He was just like, uh, he was just like staff. (laughs) No. Yeah, I can't remember the details. There's nothing more cursed to do on the internet than 
recite half-remembered facts about Star Wars. Oh, I know. Our mentions are going to be ruined. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, hey, listeners. Hey, listeners. Uh, If you know the full story of Harrison Ford, like, becoming the character Han Solo, you need to leave us a five-star Apple review. (laughs) Clearly... We are not the only two people who love a Star War. Good Arrested Development reference, Marcel. I like it. You know it. Let's find out why in Why This, Why Now? The segment in which we consider the material conditions that allowed our object of study to become zeitgeisty. Ooh. What if I got a tattoo that says zeitgeisty? On your knuckles? Ooh, zeitgeist knuckle tattoos? Zeit. It's too Geist. late. I'm already planning my nasty little grabber's knuckle tattoos, so. <laughs> I'm not sure it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. Hannah, this is not so much a fun fact. It's just a real fact. I went to the uh, reopening of Edmonton's planetarium last weekend. That makes me feel very jealous. I'm there and I'm just like, man, I've got this this Star Wars script that, I, that I'm percolating and I... I want to, like, this building was built in the 60s, and, like, I really want to, I want to look into the history and the developments of astrophysics in, like, the 60s and the 70s, and I bet that's going to be really important to the development of, like, why Star Wars was so popular. Makes perfect sense to me. Jurassic Park emerged out of uh, exciting new things that happened in paleontology in the 60s and 70s. This is a totally logical connection. Yeah. George Lucas and uh, Steven Spielberg, famously, very good friends. Yeah. Fun fact, they met in the 70s. (laughs) That is such a fun fact. But uh, Hannah, do you know what what else was happening in the 60s and 70s? Uh, The hippies. Hippies Mm -hmm. happened. Yeah. Yeah. Flower, Flower and a gun. Vietnam protests. Okay, okay. Now we're Vietnam getting there. and the protests. We're getting, we're getting Vietnam yeah. and the related protests. Yes, yes. It's Vietnam. It's Vietnam. It's the Vietnam War. That is that is the thing that was happening, and uh, now that the that's the big thing. That's the big thing. Okay, so we're not going to talk about space. We're going to talk about Vietnam. No, I wouldn't do that to you. We've we've got to talk about space. We'll start with space, but trust me, we we're gonna we're gonna get to the war. Okay. What was happening with astrophysics? <laughs> okay. I'm sure that it will not come as a surprise to anybody that the 60s and the 70s was like a like a pretty big developmental period for uh, science and technology. Like we learned a lot of stuff in that period that we didn't know before. <laughs> it was important. So um, when I was trying to find, you know, what was going on and what were folks thinking about that time, I found this uh, retrospective article that was written by an astrophysicist named Eric J. Chasson. And uh, he wrote, and I quote, over the course of the past two decades, we have learned more about the cosmos and our place in it than in the entire previous 10,000 years of civilization. End quote. So while that might be hyperbolic, He's an astrophysicist, and I don't think astrophysicists are known for hyperbole. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But the way that I interpret that statement is that during the 60s and 70s, space nerds, which I refer to lovingly, space nerds were fundamentally redefining the relationship between humans and the cosmos. And like, that's a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And part of this is because those technological developments were allowing mere humans to explore deep space. So being able to like see and interpret the cosmos in ways that we couldn't previously because we we didn't have the technology to make our eyeballs see it, you know? Okay. So humans were able to see space. What does that mean? Could you give me an example? Yeah. Yeah. So like when we look into the night sky through like a telescope, we can only see so far, like no matter how kind of powerful the telescopes are, like our eyeballs can only kind of perceive so much information. But like reading Shazen's 
description, the way that he describes the things that we were able to discover and learn is so romantic. So I will, I'll give you, I'll read you one example. So astrophysicists like romance, but not hyperbole. I know. So, okay. So listen, <laughs> listen. So here's one example. The rest we'll put in the substack. Okay. Quote, radio and infrared techniques now enable us to quote unquote, listen to huge interstellar clouds slowly contracting to form stars. Thus, we are now learning a great deal about the embryonic stages of stars, a subject about which the oldest science, astronomy, had been experimentally ignorant until the dawn of the 1970s. End quote. Listening to <laughs> stars being born. <laughs> Hannah. Yeah, it's cool. It's so cool. It's so cool. It's cool. Space is cool. Space is cool. And in the 60s and 70s, people were really like this space being cool was becoming part of the like popular cultural conversation. And we can see that if we look at like the different types of popular culture programming that we start to see emerging, right? Like we we already had things like comic books and science fiction, for sure. So in 1957, the BBC launches this educational program called The Sky at Night. And the host basically like nerds out about the night sky and continue to do so for 50 years. In 1963, BBC releases the very well-known fictional program called Doctor Who. You might be familiar. In 1966, we get the original Star Trek, also a camp masterpiece like Star Wars. In 1968, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey hits theaters. Like, there was so much cultural interest in telling stories and learning in different ways and imagine yeah. the cosmos. But um, there is a downside. To rapid scientific development? Never. I mean, surprisingly. When has that ever gone badly? <laughs> Name two Ba. I mean... <laughs> So Shazen explains that, and I'm going to, I'm going to quote here, even though, quote, public understanding of science was on the rise, end quote, science and technology were advancing too rapidly for regular folks to keep up. And Shazen argues that like a big part of this problem is that scientists lost their willingness to, quote, grant a small fraction of their time to what might be called scientific citizenship, end quote. This is also the period when scientists start arguing that funding for science should only be decided by other scientists. Mm -hmm. It's the advent of peer review mm. as distinguished from like a more general review. Mm -hmm. It's scientists being like, actually, nobody else is qualified to say what we're allowed to study. Nobody else is allowed. Nobody else is allowed to think about it. <laughs> only us. Yeah. So if science communication's not happening. Mm hmm. Which is now, you know, like it's that that has shifted. There is there is like a really sort of rich, robust world of mm -hmm. of science communication now happening. But if in the 60s and 70s, scientists are like, we're learning hella cool stuff about space and it's none of your business. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a like it's a bummer. And it's also not exactly new. Like historically, there have always been communities of people excluded from scientific discourse, scientific education. And that's in part where the breadth of science fiction comes from, because folks who couldn't participate in the actual real world development of science, they took their imaginations elsewhere into the world of, you know, fiction. Like Star Wars. Exactly. Like Star Wars. So I want to tell you and listeners about this very sweet conversation between scholar Lisa Yazik and writer Kathy Goonan about how satisfying it was to see Star Wars when it first came to theaters in, in 77. So Kathy Goonan first remembers that, quote, before Star Wars came along, science fiction at the movies mostly meant monsters or aliens. But 1977 changed everything. Thing, George Lucas made it really easy to understand our genre, end quote. And Lisa Yazik adds that, quote, people didn't need to have a deep background to understand it, it being the science fiction of Star Wars, end quote. So clearly, the people 
wanted to think about space. And that included people who didn't have a background either in science fiction or in science education. Yeah. So a plucky young filmmaker comes along <laughs> and decides that he's going to democratize science and give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. That's what Hollywood always does, right? Hollywood, we can agree. The great democratizing, non-hierarchical institution <laughs> in which all people have equal access to knowledge. Hollywood! Lol! <laughs> okay, so obviously we're going to talk about Hollywood and the government. So, Hannah... Do you Ooh, the government? The government. Sorry, why did I just get more excited about the government? Oh no. This podcast has ruined me. Hannah loves the government. I'm like, ooh, policy? <laughs> yes. Ooh. <laughs> Hannah, do you remember what a repressive state apparatus is? Of course I do. Of course. Okay, so uh Louis Althusser, uh French. Uh, post-structuralist theorist, has this idea of repressive and ideological state apparatuses mm -hmm. as being the different ways that the state enforces or perpetuates ideologies. Mm -hmm. So the repressive state apparatus is the like sort of outward ways that the state like mentally and physically coerces its citizens into compliance. So it's like the institutions that let the state enact violence on its citizens. Yes, yes, exactly. Could you give us a couple examples? Marcel, I think about them every day. The police, the military, and prisons. Precisely. Althusser wasn't writing about uh, the repressive state apparatus in an American context, but... Um, what was his context, would you say? French? I would say that it was French. And I'm so sorry to our French listeners if we have I was just going to cut that. Oh, good. Okay. I was just going to cut that. That was bad. We're badly behaved. If I had to make a bet, I would put money on Althusser, including institutions like the CIA and the FBI under the umbrella of the repressive state apparatus. But uh, I bring them up not for fun, but for educational purposes. Because as you know, Hannah, there is a long history of evidence to show that uh, the various elements of the U.S. Department of Defense, for example, have been in bed with Hollywood. Because the state doesn't want its repressive apparatuses and its ideological apparatuses working out of sync. The state is invested in them being aligned. Exactly. Exactly. So I did a little bit of reading about, you know, what this looked like. And at various times in history, it's extremely obvious. So we've talked in previous episodes, I think, about like how the Marvel movies are basically U.S. military propaganda. Is that a thing that we've talked about? Who knows if we've talked about it, but it's true. It is true. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we have talked about Marvel much, but that's true. Okay, so it is true. And if you don't believe me, you should Google it and then leave us a five-star Apple review. Listen, if you don't believe us, you have to leave us a five-star <laughs> Apple review. But also, maybe we'll make an episode about it. So according to scholar Tanner Murley's, during World War II, quote, the U.S. Office of War Information had a unit dedicated exclusively to Hollywood called the Bureau of Motion Pictures, end quote. And, quote, between 1942 and 1945, the Bureau reviewed 1,652 scripts, revising or discarding anything that portrayed the U.S. unfavorably, including any material that made Americans seem oblivious to the war or anti-war, end quote. So it's not just Marvel movies. This nonsense goes back at least to World War II. Oh, yeah. Oh, for sure. I mean, watch any American movies made during World War II. They're pretty obviously pro-U.S. <laughs> propaganda. It's just Bing Crosby being like, war is great. I know. It's not like, like none of this is super, is super surprising. Literally, man, I wish I was back in the army is a fucking song in White Christmas. <laughs> I wish I was back in the army, sings Rosemary Clooney. Oh, my doing God. Doing a jaunty little dance. Like, it's not Jesus. subtle. 
It's not. It's not subtle. But I think what's kind of what's really interesting about this from a material perspective is the way that sort of ebbs and flows between obvious propaganda and very subtle indirect propaganda. So totally like during World War II, Hollywood is a propaganda machine. It is churning out pro-military, pro-war cartoons and pictures. Walt Disney very famously talks about working with different departments to produce propaganda pictures, including one about taxes. <laughs> good. Good. Woo-hoo. Really good. And this won't come as a surprise, but Hollywood's movies about American military involvement in World War II are stories about the good guys. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. Undeniably. Yeah. And then we get sort of post-World War II, sort of probably the most famous alignment of Hollywood with the government, which is Kubrick helping to fake the moon landing. That's not where I thought you were going to go, but that is also an absolute hoot. Coach is uh, saying no. Okay. Coach tells me people will be confused. There's a conspiracy theory that the U.S. government faked the moon landing and that Stanley Kubrick directed it, (laughs) which I just think it just really tickles me. Mm -hmm. I find it really funny for a couple of reasons. One, Kubrick's involvement, hilarious. Uh, Two, could be true governments are liars can you just read what i've scripted for you so that we can move fine okay so hollywood is actively working with different parts of the government as well as the military to make propaganda including possibly the moon landing including possibly the moon landing i can't believe i'm being silenced on my own (laughs) podcast the truth will get out so the other important context post-world war ii surely is the like communist witch hunts that were happening right like that's what the you know the 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 crucible is famously just a extended metaphor for mccarthyism and the way that like people were literally turning on each other and like ratting each other out for being communists the thing is that that actually didn't start after world war ii there is evidence that it started as uh, early as 1941 because um, anti-Semites in the uh, con- in Congress didn't necessarily know the difference between Jews and communists. So um, Alison Perlman still still don't. Alison Perlman, writing for the website Britannica, says, quote, congressional accusations of communist influence in the film industry began in 1941, end quote, and basically continued until the 1960s. So like throughout World War II and the decade following, Hollywood is simultaneously collaborating, (laughs) simultaneously collaborating with various federal departments to sniff out socialism and making varying degrees of military propaganda movies depicting American soldiers as heroes. Now, Hannah, riddle me this. Uh Why Uh might both have slowed down in the 1960s? Oh, that would be the massively unpopular war that the U.S. was waging in Vietnam. Yes, yes. Super, super unpopular. Super unpopular, that's right. Not originally, but fun fact, the rise of photojournalism played a major role in the the shift of public opinion about Vietnam because people were coming back with pictures and being like, hey, guess what's happening in this war? And the public was like... What? Yeah, exactly. So what we had with the American involvement in Vietnam was evidence that one, the U.S. was losing and two, that American soldiers were being war criminals. So it ceased to be possible to make movies that would sell in Hollywood about the good guys in the U.S. Army going overseas and fighting the bad guys. So going back to Tanner Murley's, apparently during this time, the military didn't have editorial oversight. And I'm not sure whether or not that's because it's like, quote unquote, contributions were not particularly effective, or if it's because relationships had already been established, because they had had editorial oversight for like 20 years. So I think it's worth pointing out that even though We don't have like very obvious pro-U.S. military propaganda movies being made during this time. There's no intensive critical interrogation 
of the military, the military industrial complex or U.S. foreign policy at this time. It does come later, but even movies like The Deer Hunter or Taxi Driver that are supposed to show the impacts that the war has had on soldiers. Again, this is Murley's quote, they very much individualize and psychologize and pathologize the war, but don't give us the bigger backdrop that would help us understand the forces driving that war and the real consequences for those on the receiving end of the bombs falling, those being the Vietnamese people, end quote. Of course, I mean, they're still about, those movies are still about, like, white American men and the impact of the war on them. It's There's certainly not a, like either a, a, a critical structural framework for thinking about militarism and imperialism, uh, nor like any actual telling stories about Vietnamese people. And like pretty famously misrepresented the opposing side, the Viet Cong, um, representing them as like brutal sadists. And in this way, scholars argue that the films really still function very powerfully as pro-U.S. propaganda and not anti-war critiques. They're just like, wow, war is hard on people and not, we solve the war. We save the day. So in the midst of this, 1977, a movie comes out called Star Wars. Yeah. Is it like, like, how does that, how does that fit in? (laughs) (laughs) What a great question, Hannah. What a great question. Why? Why that? Why then? We got to start with the fact that George Lucas has very overt and strong leftist politics, as strong as a white billionaire can have, mind you. So we're going to put a we're going to put a pin (laughs) in in that and maybe an unnecessary addendum. But like he wasn't a billionaire when he made Star Wars. He was like a he was a scrappy up and coming filmmaker um, who had recently graduated from the University of Southern California. And this area is like a real hotbed for um, anti-war, um, anti-war protests and action and things like GI coffee houses, which were like anti-military hotbeds. <laughs> Marcel, the way that I want to just like sweep this your entire nuanced script right off the table and be like okay well let's talk about why this movie which is so obviously critical of the u.s as a huge militaristic empire has been embraced by right-wing viewers who are pro-us military how's that happen but that's i'm skipping ahead i'm skipping ahead So Lucas himself says that Star Wars was a critique of the Vietnam War, and he was writing it during the Watergate trials, right? So the so in 1973 is when he like starts writing it. That's also when the burglars from the Watergate Hotel like go on trial. And he refers to in interviews, he refers to Nixon's attempt at re-election as playing a role in the development of the movie. Like he, Lucas says in interviews that Nixon's efforts at re-election, quote, got me thinking historically about how do democracies get turned into dictatorships, end quote. And Mm. I think it's fair to suggest that the notion of, say, uh, a, a major galactic government committing war crimes in secret is like a little reminiscent of Nixon ordering secret bombings in Cambodia. Like it's it's possible. Yeah, literally, it's like a huge empire secretly developing mega weapons and then dropping it on people. Like the metaphor is not a particularly tortured one. It's pretty straightforward. It is not. But since we're not really talking about content, because we do materialist critique here, we only rarely dip into into actual analysis of the film itself, you know, for fun. I'm going to talk about the films. You can't stop me. I, I want to bring the science fiction scholar Lisa Yazik back in because uh, she talks about how the film represents the figure of the soldier in really interesting ways. Um, So she says of Star Wars, quote, these are stories about how you turn men into weapons. 
we increasingly understand that soldiers who experience war come home transformed and different, and that it can be hard for them to stop being a weapon or a soldier and become human again. Star Wars explored these themes with Darth Vader and even Luke Skywalker, who loses an arm, gains a cyborg arm, starts dressing in black, and has to make tough decisions while being conditioned by his life as a warrior, end quote. So this metaphor, as you're saying, not... Not a stretch. Not a stretch. It's not a stretch. It's it's clear. People saw it. Okay, so we've got one new technologies that are letting us learn and dream about the cosmos in different ways and listen to the birth of stars. Mm. But only astrophysicists get to listen to the birth of stars because there's not much interest in sharing those advances with the public. So then we've got this movie industry, like hypothetically, that can sort of step in and and engage the public's interest in space. But that industry is heavily influenced by the various arms of the American repressive state apparatus and mostly wants to tell stories that obscure America's growing imperial reach. So it's like, we can tell stories about space, but only specific kinds of stories. Mm-hmm. And then we've got a movie coming out that's like, oh, well, we can't tell stories about America being bad, but don't worry about it. This is a story about space and robots and a scrappy group of rebels who are successfully fighting a massive imperial government who uses wanton violence in place of diplomacy. So don't worry, we're not criticizing the U.S. (laughs) We can make this movie. It's just about space and people are horny for space. They sure are. And they're also British, you know, like the bad guys are British. It's not about America. It's not about America. This guy has a British accent. <laughs> Couldn't possibly be about America. Let's make this movie. It's fine. Nobody here's a communist. I feel like I've got some good historical context. Mm-hmm. But you know what I need now? A little theory? Yeah, something that will tie the room together. <laughs> okay. Okay. Obviously, when I agreed to do this, I forgot that I am a mere mortal. Adore no. Adore no. I did promise you a deep dive into the Marxist critique of mass culture. And so I went to the big dogs, Adorno and Horkheimer. And because I am a transparent scholar, I am not ashamed to admit that I needed help sorting out their ideas. That's really reasonable. Is that... Maybe in part because their critique of mass culture sounds like elitist bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like that's a that's a big part of it. So I need to I need to make a quick note because Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer co-authored the book Dialectic of Enlightenment. And this is where the chapter critiquing mass culture comes from. But no one really talks about Horkheimer. <laughs> Yeah, he's the angles of this collaboration. Sorry, dude. I know. And like, I didn't do an historical materialist analysis of Horkheimer's like relative erasure from contemporary scholarship and critical theory. But I, I just, I need to bring this up because even though scholars and theorists like- They're citing Adorno and Horkheimer, but they say, they just say Adorno. Yes, precisely. Exactly. So the scholar that I found who I felt most- palatably explained what Adorno says about mass culture is Owen Hewlett. And so I'm going to do a lot of referencing what Hewlett says about what Adorno says. Okay. You're kind, Marcel. I do my best. Okay. So here's a, a couple of bullet points. Okay. So this is like Adorno and Horkheimer's theory in a nutshell. <laughs> High culture requires adequate time and space to think about it, to be changed by it. But under capitalism, who has the money, let alone the time, to sit and think undisturbed about, say, a painting or a symphony? So we, regular people, overworked and underpaid, we flock to mass culture or popular culture to fulfill our need for rest and pleasure. But Hewlett explains, quote, 
popular culture is not the spontaneous expression of the people, but a profit-driven industry. It robs us of our freedom and bends us to conform to its needs for profit. End quote. Okay, so is Adorno claiming that a symphony is the spontaneous expression of the people? Because <laughs> I don't buy that. <laughs> yeah, it is It is elitist bullshit. And Hewlett agrees that Adorno absolutely sounds like a snob. Um, but what he argues is that our arrogant theoreticians problem isn't just that pop culture is, quote, bad art, though it is that, Adorno claims, end quote. The problem with pop culture is that it is harmful. Okay, so how is it hurting us? Hewlett's interpretation of Adorno's critique and Horkheimer's of mass culture claims that, quote, popular culture presents itself as a release of our repressed emotions and desires, and so as an increase in freedom. But in truth, it robs us of our freedom twice, both aesthetically in failing to give aesthetic freedom in enjoying art. God, sounds pretty elitist. <laughs> and morally in blocking the path to true social freedom, end quote. So Hewlett <laughs> contextualizes Adorno's perspective very helpfully by reminding us of two things. First, Adorno emigrated to the U.S. in 1938, right? He's He is escaping the rise of Nazism. So this cultural critic who was notorious for making composers like Stravinsky and Schoenberg cry in the bathroom was, quote, now brought face to face with Mickey Mouse, end quote. Okay. Yeah, I understand why he might have been a little horrified by American culture. <laughs> and so then second, that Adorno, a snob, having, as we said, fled the rise of fascism in Europe, suddenly finds himself and his semi-obscure pen pal, some guy named Horkheimer, under surveillance by the FBI for thinking and writing about mass culture Marxistly. Yeah. So could we say that Adorno's critique of mass culture was informed by things like Walt Disney snitching on his employees for striking? <laughs> that maybe he was like, this is harmful because it's being made by a bunch of fucking pro-government snitches <laughs> in the context of the rise of fascism? <laughs> yeah. So all of this, all of this obviously part of the same sort of anti-communist moral panic that really like intensified in cultural industries like Hollywood during this period. And Hannah, I know that you and I have talked at length about the many ways that popular culture is ideological and the many ways that it teaches its consumers how to think about things like, say, heterosexuality and consent and what it means to be a woman. So, like, Hewlett argues that this ideological stuff is a big part of Adorno's resistance to pop culture, but I would love it if you could just read the following quote from Hewlett for us to, uh, to flesh it out a bit. Quote, for Adorno, a large part of the harm inflicted by popular culture is harm to our ability to act freely and spontaneously. He claims that popular culture as well as being a source of pleasure, is also a kind of training. It engages us in and reinforces certain patterns of thought and self-understanding that harm our ability to live as truly free people. It accomplishes this partly through its very predictability, end quote. And so what I hear as elitism, like this is Adorno's distinction between high culture and popular culture, or high culture and mass culture. Like, you know I am not on board with a, a full-scale rejection of mass culture. And also, I get it. Like, I get the way that mm -hmm. the machine of Hollywood produces certain kinds of predictable narratives over and over again in a way that I, too, find imaginatively exhausting. Totally. Yes, exactly. So so even though... Like we already know the the ideological stuff. That's that's not that's not a surprise to us. Listeners, sorry, if you don't if you don't understand what we mean by like the ideological force of popular culture, um, please go back and listen to the entirety of which please. And also leave us a five star review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. <laughs> It's not unreasonable, I think, to say that like 
feminist and critical race theorists have maybe articulated concerns about ideology a little bit better than like two elitist white dudes. But what's interesting, what's kind of interesting about Adorno and the and the the parts that that you have highlighted so far is that he's not talking like in the same way that we often do about like the machine of Hollywood and like who actually gets to like the structural reasons why some people get to tell stories and others don't. Like he's talking about like aesthetics and like narrative structure, right? Yeah. And so I think that's that's maybe what he has to offer this conversation. So maybe maybe perhaps like a little ironically, like the part of his critique that feels the most elitist is also maybe the most useful. <laughs> um, <laughs> you said we were going to talk about content, but we're going to talk about content right <laughs> now. Hannah, would you please read the next quotation still from Hewlett? I will. Popular culture, quote, accustoms us to a kind of aesthetic experience that is very similar to the work it is meant to release us from, a constant checking of the artwork against preset standards and tropes, end quote. That's right. So basically, Hewlett is saying that Adorno and Horkheimer are saying that a popular film is an assembly line, and we, the viewers, are employed the task of ensuring that each part connects correctly to the whole. Okay, one more quote from Hewlett, please. Quote, Consider how rare it is when watching a popular film, for example, not to be aware of the function of the scene. One scene is clearly establishing relationships that will frame the events to come. Another is an action scene. Another gives the villain's motivation. End quote. Formula. Formula. So the fact that we can seamlessly, elegantly plot Star Wars Chapter 4, A New Hope, onto a widely used storytelling device like the hero's journey it tells us that watching the movie isn't releasing us from our work as cogs in the wheel of capitalism. Rather, and worse, as Hewlett reminds us, watching the movie actually satisfies our conditioned brains by putting us to work, quote, organizing, checking and filing the moments of the film as it passes by. Instead of being given time for consideration and interpretation, we are engaged in the very sort of classification and sorting that characterizes the world of work we thought we were escaping from, end quote. So in other words, the pleasures of popular culture simply keep us conditioned to work. I know that generally we are a materialist podcast. And also, I think talking about aesthetics and the impact that different aesthetics have on us is really valuable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. It is. And they connect very tidily in this one final point that I need to make about Adorno and Horkheimer. And... That's the way that Hewlett analyzes our cultural lives today through what we may have interpreted before this episode as Adorno's snobby elitist lens. So using pop music as an example, uh, and this is a great example because uh, Adorno hated jazz. And like I said, like made Stravinsky cry in a bathroom. Hewlett writes, quote, social provocation and protest has been harnessed to digestible music backed by large business conglomerates and used to provide the harmless release of dissatisfaction. In this release, popular culture really does meet our needs, but it ties them back into the process of profit making and disperses the energies we might have needed to make genuine change. The temporary pleasure we take in satisfying our needs and discharging our frustrations in popular culture stands in the way of a more powerful change in our way of life that could ameliorate our frustrations and serve our pleasures in a deeper and more lasting way. End quote. So remember earlier when you were like, what, if we're not watching Marvel movies, we could like make the make the world better? And Adorno would say yes. <laughs> yeah. Adorno's like, take all of that time you're spending watching Marvel movies and instead overthrow capitalism. Yes. To which I say, fair. Yeah. Sure. Fair. Yeah. And also, I just want to add as a note, I think that Adorno hating jazz 
is really racist. Oh, yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason that this is useful for us in talking about Star Wars isn't just the hero's journey. It like puts a bunch of things into perspective, right? George Lucas is the wealthiest film celebrity in the world. His personal net worth is estimated to be between $7.5 and $9.4 billion. He got rich off of Star Wars because it was popular, not because it had incisive political commentary. Yeah, so aesthetically, it is pro-imperialism, even if narratively, it's anti-imperialism. Exactly. And Ryan Teague Beckwith, writing for like Time Magazine, talks about the success of Star Wars and how it became so popular that these things like the characters, the, the, the plot devices, things like the Death Star, the stormtroopers, like all of these things become a kind of cultural shorthand and, quote, politicians and activists used it, the cultural shorthand, to make their arguments sometimes for ideas that Lucas disagreed with, end quote. That makes perfect sense. Like the the anything you want to call the evil empire can become the evil empire and anything you want to call the rebels can become the rebels. Yes. And a great example, Hannah, a great example, because in 1983, then President Ronald fucking Reagan, Ronald fucking Reagan referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. Like, like, and, 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 and there's, there's this article that talks about how whether his speechwriter like deliberately referenced the Galactic Empire or not, evil empire as the Galactic Empire is precisely the reference that the Soviets thought that he was making. Further, another not unrelated Reagan example, the space-based missile defense system that we know of now colloquially called the Star Wars missile defense system. That nickname came from critics of the missile defense system, but then <gasps> but then got adopted. I know, but then got adopted by the proponents. And they're like, you know what? Yeah. Star oh, Wars no. missile defense Myself, system. Nothing means anything. Nothing means anything. Can you imagine being George Lucas and hearing, I don't know, like a, a radio ad or something for the Star Wars missile defense system? For oh, like President Ronald fucking Reagan. Like you oh, would man. you would poop your pants. I bet he pooped his pants. You know what you would do is you would insist on making new versions of your movies that were worse with bad CGI in them. That's how you would respond. One final thing for this segment, okay? It's another quote from Ryan Teague Beckwith, who says, and I quote, as a director. You can have an idea for what a movie is supposed to mean and how people should respond to it politically. But all you can do is put it out there. After that, the audience does what it wants. End quote. Doesn't that sound like decoding and encoding, Hannah? Oh my God, it sounds like decoding and encoding. Just so folks know, that is an exciting teaser for an upcoming episode where we will talk about the important scholarship of one Stuart Hall. So you're just going to have to keep listening to find out what decoding and encoding means. An exciting teaser for a future conversation about Marxist critique. From decades ago. <laughs> From so long ago. We are so fun. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, Coach, can we get that Star Wars stinger again? Because it's time for In This Essay, I Will, and Marcel's about to read us her thesis. The 1960s and 70s were fraught decades of rapid social, technological, and scientific development. The space race, for example, increased the general public's interest in and access to cosmic awe, an indirect celebration 
of the audacity of American imperialism at a time when the anti-Vietnam War movement was simmering across America. Hopeful stargazers and dissatisfied citizens alike turned to popular media like the movies to help make meaning of the unfathomable chaos of being alive. Popular culture, however, is likewise fraught with censorship, propaganda, and supposedly empty escapism. With its accessible representations of science fiction tropes, including the reassuring deployment of the hero's journey and a happy ending, as well as carefully pointing its anti-imperialist critique at an imaginary galactic empire, Star Wars is so heavily cloaked in allegory that even fascist pigs can see themselves reflected in the good guys. In this essay, I will... Okay, Marcel, I, I really need us to talk more about fascist pigs seeing themselves reflected in the good guys. Cause, because, man, <laughs> oh, man, there's so much exciting stuff to untangle here. And one piece of it is certainly the way that culture made in an unfree landscape has to work around what is unsayable. And we've talked about this. We talked about this in the context when we did our bonus about the Barbie movie. Mm-hmm, and Coach right. was like, why isn't this more gay? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it's it, it's supposed to be a global movie. And if it has any gay content, it can't be screened in a lot of places. That's right. So, the, you know, this is a version of that. Like, there are things that are unsayable. And one thing that is unsayable in the historical moment of the 1970s is that the U.S. government is a violent imperialist force creating horrifying mass weapons and committing war crimes mm-hmm. on a hitherto unconceived of scale. That's right. Like, it's true And it can't be said out loud Mm -hmm. and not just in a like, I'll get in trouble if I say it out loud, but in a like, Walt Disney will tell the FBI on me if I say it out loud. Yeah. Kind of, kind of vibe. So you create a story that says it otherwise, right? You, um, to paraphrase Emily Dickinson, you tell the truth, but tell it slant. Um, I think Emily Dickinson and George Lucas have a lot in common when you think about it. So you create a narrative that uses analogy, parallel, genre, familiar narrative structures, lots of other stuff to tell a story or to make an argument that can't be made overtly. But then you've kind of functionally, to paraphrase Audre Lorde, you're kind of using the master's tools to try to tear down the master's house. And mm-hmm. at least according to Adorno, you can't do that. According to Lord, too. <laughs> according to Lord, too. Yeah, you know what? Actually, <laughs> really great point. Most importantly, according to Lord, you can't do that. <laughs> but also Adorno. <laughs> Adorno would agree. So despite the fact that Adorno's like disdain for popular culture is something that sits very uneasily with both of us Mm -hmm. in this particular case we can see a lot of what he argues in action Mm -hmm. via the fact that like right-wing people watch these movies and see themselves in the rebels not in the empire totally i don't remember where this comes from it'll probably show up in the substack so just hang on to your hats people gonna be a long one there are also there are also instances where People will posit that perhaps the Galactic Empire were the good guys. That this is a movie about, I know, that this is a movie about rebels trying to dismantle a stable and functioning government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I I agree that that my leaders should be able to 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 psychically choke me when I talk back. That's a that's a stable a good stable government. Truly, truly, like people watch these movies in all kinds of like shocking and wild ways. And I don't know, like do you remember when we first were talking about this episode and I was like, I want to know, the question that I want to ask about Star Wars is how is it even possible that such a successful movie franchise in late capitalism can be so clearly about overthrowing the boot that is on our necks? And like, 
even even reading reading through the history of its development and and like like on the one hand yeah it had to be so heavily cloaked in allegory that the story could be told in the first place but then it becomes so financially successful that they can get like quite literal the spin-off series andor is like quite overtly about the ways in which the repressive state apparatus is violent and coercive and not our friend and not there to help us. But at this point, Star Wars is this huge money-making franchise owned by Making Disney. Making money for? Yeah, Disney. that's the one. <laughs> I mean, he's he's dead and Elemental has a non-binary character. So like, rot in your grave, Walt Disney, you snitch. But... Um, <laughs> I just actually need our new merch to say, rot in your grave, Walt Disney, you snitch. So the point is, at some at at a certain at a certain point, the profit making of the polemical franchise is so successful, so huge, so reliable that you don't need allegory anymore. You can just you can just be like, man, the government is corrupt. <laughs> and it's it's okay. It's still gonna make you money. The people don't care anymore. The people in power don't care. That's it. The people in power don't care. Like, isn't there something a little bit sinister, potentially, about recognizing that at this point pop culture can say the quiet part out loud mm-hmm. and the government's not worried? Because mm-hmm. like, what if Adorno was right? <laughs> Oh, Adorno was absolutely right. Not about jazz. Yeah. But specifically when I say Adorno was right, I mean that formulaically produced popular culture can have a deadening effect on its potential political meaning, particularly when it's obscured to the point that anybody can use it as a metaphor for anything, but also like at an at an aesthetic level when it like let's think aesthetically about the first star wars movie and the fact that it's like cool okay who are we going to imagine as the figurehead for the person who's being crushed by imperialist violence it's a plucky young white man okay who are we going to imagine as the figurehead for as the you know representative for a sort of like guerrilla approach to warfare it's gonna be a plucky young white man okay who are we going to and then it's it's so that that's just one example of the ways that aesthetically yeah formulaic popular culture reproduces a version of reality that ultimately reinforces the status quo and the the power of the existing ruling class, even when it is simultaneously saying at a textual level, like, it's bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The part of the Star Wars fandom that I find particularly intriguing around all of these things we are talking about is... Do you know what, like, the most common form of Star Wars cosplay is? Stormtroopers? Darth Vader? It's stormtroopers, right? It's, like, this huge thing where, like, people, like, there's, there's, and again, listeners, if you've got more context about this, because I don't remember the details, so if you have more context, um, feel free to write that context down in a five-star Apple review. Thank you. <laughs> That's actually the just the best way to communicate context to us. If you want us to take it seriously, it's if you gonna want us, need to come you, with a five yeah. star review. <laughs> it's gonna happen. Otherwise, we can't hear it. We can't hear it. But people like dress up like stormtroopers and go to I don't know, go to children's hospitals. Like go go do like go out and do community events <laughs> yeah, and go yeah, like yeah. It's this whole big thing, and it's so baffling to me because obviously the the evocation of star wars itself as a whole is a comforting thing for people like its cultural role for us is such that any references to it have a kind of shared pleasure mm-hmm. 
And the stormtroopers are a very powerful visual signifier mm-hmm. of the world of Star Wars. And so they produce that, that you know, that pleasure reaction for us. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I know this. I recognize this, right? What Adorno is telling us is our, like, little factory brains at work being like, I know where this belongs. <laughs> I, know where, I know what cog this goes on. <laughs> But also, they are like the movie's metaphor for Nazis. Like they are, they are a violent, faceless imperial force doing terrible war crimes. And it's pretty wild that that's what people dress up as. Yeah. Yeah. Elliot has a stormtrooper costume and she loves it. And she does not identify with the bad guys. Even when we were watching Star Wars when she was smaller, she always wanted to skip through the scenes with Darth Vader because they were too scary. And yet she was so excited to get this costume precisely because it's activating those pleasure centers in her brain. where She's like, oh, this is the fun imagination world in space. Yeah, fun imagination world in space. Somehow by putting on this helmet, I get to be a little bit closer to the experience of listening to the sound of a star being born. Mm. Man, mm. we've made a lot of references to a star is born. We Oops. sure have. Let's get a little, uh, just the saddest, the saddest stinger. You can maybe when they're playing the piano, like, like you know, in the flashback, the flashback. No, memory. I want. No. Oh, oh, you know that one. That. When I used to teach at the University of Alberta, I taught English for engineers quite a lot. Mm-hmm. And while the majority of that course was about teaching grammar and clear writing, I did include some segments about sort of some basic ideas of cultural critique, just to be like, I'm going to try to get you to think a little bit about how culture works. Mm-hmm. And I gave them an article Maybe you can look this up and include it in the Substack because it's out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a, a reading of the new trilogy against the old trilogy, the mm. original trilogy. We're not mm-hmm. talking about the prequels at all. They don't count. No, they don't exist. Um, talking about the way that it is reimagining the analogy for an updated generational struggle with fascism. Mm -hmm. So the argument that the article is making is that in the original trilogy, the enemy is your parents' generation who are aligned with fascism. And Mm -hmm. it is youth culture that Mm -hmm. is fighting back against that. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the new trilogy, it is one of your peers who is voluntarily redonning the helmet of fascism and demonstrating that like we thought that like if we overthrew our parents generation we would be able to create a world of freedom and then we looked around and we were like oh our peers are voluntarily becoming fascists and all of our sort of thinking about generational change has been upended and I was like cool this is like a pretty straightforward argument about how texts mean things that you know, use some really popular narratives that people are familiar with. And I presented it to my students. I asked them to read it. And where they took issue with it was the premise that culture means anything. Oh, no. Oh, no. Their issue was the idea that a movie is about anything other than what the movie is literally about. And it was a pretty eye-opening moment for me in terms of, say, watching Star Wars and being like, how could anybody not see that this is obviously anti-imperialist? And then realizing that for a lot of people, the idea that a story is anything other than just the thing it is, is an unfamiliar concept. To go back to Adorno, that might help explain why he was so into and Horkheimer, like, like high culture that doesn't give its meaning to you readily. It forces you to sit and think about it and like wrestle with the ideas so that you have to accept that it is. It's doing something. It's doing a thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
So we can spend our time thinking and talking about pop culture, but we've gotta we gotta work to demonstrate that it is doing a thing. Mm. And you know what? I'm here for it. Hey Marcel, do you have like another hour or so to talk about the role that fandom plays in all of this and like the sort of massive complex fan communities that have emerged around Star Wars? Like maybe I just think one more hour. This will just be a two and a half hour episode. You know what we should do? What? We should, we should do a bonus where people ask us questions and then we answer them. That's actually a really great idea. Let's do that. Material Girls is a Witch Please production and is distributed by Acast. You can find the rest of our episodes and our other podcasts on Acast or at ohwitchplease.ca. Our website has all kinds of fun stuff that we think you will love. You can sign up for our amazing newsletter and our Substack. You can access our transcripts and reading lists, and you can check out our merch, including our latest edition, Harry, our weird feral little guy. Martha, you know I ordered that hoodie immediately. <laughs> if you have questions, comments, concerns, or praise, we thrive on praise. Maybe all our references to five-star reviews indicated as much. Come hang out with us at Oh Witch Please on Instagram, threads, and maybe Twitter or X. But TikTok, for sure, at Oh Witch Please Pod. You also simply must check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash ohwitchplease. You will not believe the quantity of perks available to supporters. It defies the laws of physics, which I know. The laws. I know them. And it defies them. Sounds like a star being born. As I just said, we've started a Substack. Every month, we're offering a look at the roller coaster rides we take while researching our episodes. So far, we've got stacks on our Barbie by Petro Capitalism episode and our Avatar by Hypermediacy episode. To subscribe to our Substack, head over to ohwitchplease.substack.com. If you subscribe, you also get the monthly hoot via the same subscription. What a deal. Mm. Special thanks to everyone on the Witch Please Productions team who keep this Rebel Alliance operational, including our digital content coordinator, Gabby Iori, our social media manager and marketing designer, Zoe Mix. Our sound engineer, Eric Magnus. And our executive producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. At the end of every episode, we will thank everyone who has joined our Patreon or boosted their tier to help make our work possible. Our enormous gratitude goes out to Molly H., Amanda D, Eleanor S, Sarah M, MB, Jillian M, and The Knife. We'll be back next episode to tackle another piece of pop culture through a whole new theoretical lens. But until then, later lightsabers. Later lightsabers.